Well, this is our third week in our journey through First and Second Samuel, and we're going to look at chapters four through six this morning. So I hear that there is a new Indiana Jones movie on the way in 2023. And I've enjoyed the uh, Indiana Jones franchise for the 40 year or so years it's been around. It's hard to believe it's been that long. Um, in the first movie, many of you will remember, called Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, Dr. Jones seeks to find the Ark of the Covenant, which is talked about in our text this morning, um, before the Nazis can get to it. And Dr. Jones believes that if he's able to get to it before the Nazis and he can gain access then any army that carries the Ark of the Covenant into battle will win. And yet Dr. Jones and the Nazis could have saved themselves quite a bit of time if they had read our chapters this morning. Because what we'll see is everywhere the Ark goes, people lose, not win. So what was was the Ark of the Covenant? That's the dominant theme and feature of these chapters. Samuel kind of drops out of the picture. Remember, we were introduced to Samuel last week, the son of Hannah, who was rising up as this great new prophet and priest in Israel who was going to lead them forward. Well, we're going to come back to him next week in chapter 7. But when Samuel drops off the scene here in the narrative in the beginning of chapter 3, we get two or three chapters of discussion about the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's presence in Israel. Remember, it was a ornamented wooden box that was covered in gold that was placed inside the tabernacle in the holy place. It contained the Ten Commandments Moses that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai. This is a significant thing in the people of the life of the people of Israel it's symbolic of not only what God has done for them but also who God is among them it is the sign and the symbol that the Lord is with them and yet in our text this morning we see that the ark of the covenant is captured and it's carried away and the daughter-in-law of Phineas derives the right application from that when the ark of the covenant left God left His presence was no longer with his people. And that's what we're going to see this morning. How the presence of God is moving in these chapters. As as God begins in Israel, moves into the land of the Philistines, and then comes back into Israel. And we're going to notice what the Ark of the Covenant does as it goes around. Which is why I've called our sermon this morning, Tales of a Traveling Ark. We're going to look at two key questions this week and next week. We're going to focus on the first question this week, and Lord willing, we'll come to the next question next week. Our question this week is, when and how does God's glorious presence leave his people? When and how does God's glorious presence leave his people? Now, we're going to wrestle next week with, does God's presence ever leave us now as his people? I mean, didn't he promise us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you? So how are we to make sense of that? Just If those questions start rising in your mind this week, those are great questions. We're going to come back to them next week. We're just going to treat the narrative here this morning and notice how God's presence does leave his people and why it does. And then next week, we'll come back and talk about how God's presence returns to his people. And we're going to see four different ways in each way, in each count. So we're going to look this week, four different ways 
and reasons God's presence leaves his people. And then next week, four different reasons God's presence returns to his people. I was going to treat these in the same sermon, but there's just too much here. And we need to spend some more time thinking about each one of these things individually. Four ways this morning, God's presence leaves his people and why it does. First of all, God's presence leaves when God is used. God's presence leaves when God is used. In the first 11 verses that Aiden read for us just a moment ago, the story begins with the people of Israel taking God's presence somewhat lightly. They go into battle against their arch enemy, the Philistines, in the first couple of verses, and they lose. And they're confused by this. I mean, is not God among us? What happened here? Didn't we just, I mean, we, we, we weren't there, but we remember the days of Joshua when Joshua moved into the land and conquered everywhere he went. What, what's happened here? So what do they do? They call for the Ark of the Covenant to be brought out of the tabernacle at Shiloh and brought into the camp, the army camp, so that they can re-engage with the Philistines in hopes that the presence of the Ark of the Covenant with them will symbolically and really mean God is present among them and that they will defeat their enemies. Now here's the problem with that. We're going to look at several problems with that, but the first one is what should they have done when they were defeated initially? Well, they should have allowed the question that they raise in chapter 4, verse 3, to linger over them and disturb them for a little while. What did 4, 3 say? They asked this question. Why has the Lord, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They don't ask, why have the Philistines defeated us? They say, why the Lord allowed this to happen? Well, maybe they should have sat on that for a while and thought about why was it that the Lord allowed them to be defeated in this way. Then perhaps Leviticus twenty six seventeen would have come to mind, where we read, I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Oh, so the reason we were struck down is because God has set his face against us. Well, why has God set his face against us? I wonder why that could be. Or Deuteronomy 28, 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. Oh, so why did the Lord cause this? But they don't ask those questions. Instead, they go an entirely different route. They grab the ark and they say, all right, now God will save us because his honor's at stake. The Philistines know we're bringing the ark of the covenant out. And they are going to run in fear. And God will be forced to deliver us. Because this is the, pre- his, the sign of his presence. And if he allows us to be defeated, what are they going to say about him? They're going to laugh him to scorn. The Philistines are going to say, see, I knew your God was weak. So it was a pressure tactic. An attempt by the people of Israel to twist God's arm. Instead of seeking God, they say, let's try to control him. Instead of submitting to God, they say, let's use him. The ark was supposed to remain in the tabernacle. But the Israelites chose in disobedience to God to bring it out onto the battlefield because they believed that if they had the symbol of God's presence among them as they fought, they would win. Rather than humbling themselves before the Lord in the face of their defeat, Israel treated the Lord like a genie for their purposes, like some sort of rabbit's foot. 
They're treating his glory lightly as though they believe they can co-opt God for their own agenda. And yet we read in verses 10 and 11 that the same thing happened as in verse 2 in an even greater way. Remember in verses 1 and 2 we read that the people of Israel, about 4,000 men on the field of battle were killed. Well, what happened the second time? They tried to go back to the Philistines with the Ark of the Covenant and re-engage them in battle. Well, it was even a greater defeat with the presence of God, the symbol of God's presence among them. We read in verses, uh, verse 10, and there was a great slaughter and 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. Almost 10 times the amount of soldiers were killed in the second engagement with the Philistines than the first engagement and they had the presence of God with them. They go into battle with the ark and they lose in a greater way. Why? Because, dear ones, God will not be used. God will not be manipulated. And God's presence leaves when that happens. Let's think about this for a moment. I hope you don't think this is a uniquely Israelite problem. Because if you're anything like the sinful heart that we were... If you have anything of the sinful heart that we were reminded of by Pastor Keith Withrow this morning in our reading then you know that manipulation of God is alive and well in our own hearts. And even in our own time and perhaps even in our own church. Think about the ways we can use God. Well, in its most crass forms, you know, it, 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 it takes the form of blending trust in God with superstition. You know, we have good luck charms and we speak of faith and we ascribe significance to religious jewelry and horoscopes or crossing ourselves or whatever superstitious forms we we take. But it can take much more regular, ordinary forms as well. Do we only seek God when we want something? Do we only seek God when we need him to fix our bad circumstances? possible for us to treat God like something of a divine butler or waiter, isn't it? We're basically ignoring him, much like we ignore our waiter at a restaurant, unless we need or want something, and then we call him over. We'd like to order dessert, please. Can you bring us some more water? Hey, we're ready to check out. Can you bring us our bill? The waiter doesn't join us and sit down at the table and eat. We just call him or her over when we need them. And we can treat God like that. He's not central to every waking moment of our lives. He's just the cosmic bellhop that we summon when we need help with our luggage. You remember the story of Josiah, a great man of God and leader of Israel. He was born to wicked King Ammon, who was murdered by his own servants. And Joshua had every reason not to seek God. But in Second Chronicles 34.3, we see this astounding statement about Joshua, Josiah. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father David. When Josiah was 16 years old, he began to seek God. And here's the amazing thing. It doesn't appear that there was anything that prompted him to pursue God other than God. There was no war breaking out. There's no personal crisis. There's no famine. He just started to seek God because God was worth seeking. So let me ask you a question. Do we seek God like that? Do we just want to know God because God is worthy of being known? Do we want to have a relationship with God because having a relationship with God is the goal? (laughs) Just to know him, 
Right? Remember what Paul said in Philippians 3. Oh, just to know him. To know him. Jesus said, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God. Or do we use God? Dear ones, whatever, whenever our worship ceases to be you are worthy and turns into you are useful, the proverbial ark is getting brought out into the church again. Let's remember that God does not exist for us. We exist for him. We are made by him. We are made for him, not the other way around. The world does not revolve around us. This is God's world, and it revolves around him. And he must be the center and sum of, and substance of our lives, the center of our own personal solar systems. God's glorious presence must function that way. He's not a genie that we manipulate to fulfill our wishes. He's a sovereign and free God who does with us what he pleases. And so we trust him with that. That's the first way. God's presence leaves when God is used. Secondly, God's presence leaves when God is robbed. God's presence leaves when God is robbed. This is in the second half of chapter 4, verses 12 to 22. And these are, again, are verses we read at the beginning, so I won't take time to reread them again now. But just to remind you what happened after the battle with the Philistines, in which the sons of Eli were killed, just as God promised and planned that they would be in chapter 2, that we saw last week, the news of the defeat comes to Eli. And I just think Eli's getting a lot of hard news these days, isn't he? He got hard news from Samuel last week, and now he's getting hard news from this man from Benjamin who was at the battle and running to talk to Eli about what's happened. And the news, when it reaches Eli, it literally kills him. And his pregnant daughter-in-law hears the news and immediately goes into labor, and she dies in childbirth, but not before she has the opportunity to name her child. And what name does she choose? Ichabod. God's presence is gone. The ark is taken. This is one of the darkest moments in the book of Samuel right here. I mean, we thought it's been dark so far, and it has been dark. But Hophni and Phinehas are dead. Eli's dead. His daughter-in-law is dead. And the son that's been born has been named Ichabod. God's glory has departed Israel. It's the darkest day, I think, in Israel's history up to this point. A corrupt priesthood is gone. Judgment reigns as God punishes Eli and his household for their sin. As both Hannah prophesied and God fulfilled. As God warned back in chapter 2 verse 30 in Hannah's praise song, those who despise him will be disdained by him. And Eli's house has despised the Lord. And if the glory of God has departed, where is it residing? Ironically, it's around the waist of Eli. Did you see verse 18? Look at verse 18, because the translation can sometimes be a little bit confusing. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a double meaning. The, the writer is trying to capture, yes, Lee, Lee, uh, Eli's a heavy set man, and he fell over and broke his neck. But the word heavy, we read in verse 18 at the end, his neck was broken and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He judged Israel 40 years. That word heavy is repeated throughout these chapters. And it's tied in to the word for glory. The Hebrew word for glory is kavod, which means God's heaviness. It's his weight. It's his importance. It's his greatness. 
And where is God's greatness? Well, it's here on Levi. It's around his waist. Now, why, why does the writer say that the man was old and heavy? Well, to give an explanation for why he fell over. But they could have just said, look, the guy's 98 at this point. I mean, he's going he's gonna to fall over. He's old. So um, that could be reason enough that he falls over. But they mentioned that he's heavy. What, what's the significance? It's the same word used for glory in verse 22. The glory has departed from Israel. In verse 21, the glory has departed from Israel. Glory, heavy, it, it comes from the same root word. So Eli dies, yes, in part because he receives the tragic news of the defeat from the Philistines and that the ark has been captured, but also because he has robbed the glory of God. The glory of God has been stolen from God and quite literally put around the waist of Eli. And that's why it's been stolen by the Philistines. God has been robbed of his glory. How? How was Eli getting fat? By eating the sacrifices he wasn't supposed to eat. Remember last week with the immorality that was present in the sacrificial system? What was happening? Hophni and Phinehas and Eli and other assistants with them were making sure that when the people brought the offering forward, that they were getting the fat off the meat before it was ever cooked. Why? Well, they were disobeying God because the fat was reserved for God. It was meant to be offered for God. But they were taking it, and what were they doing? They were eating it, with probably mixed in with other things, but eating it and getting fat on the parts of the sacrifice that belonged to God. They were taking from God, and their God was their belly. Eli was robbing God. He had robbed God of his glory and took it for himself. He'd gotten fat off the fat of the sacrificial offerings that belonged to God. Now, dear ones, do we rob God? Well, in the book of Malachi, Israel, Israel was charged with the offense of robbing God. Remember Malachi 3, 7 and 9. Will man rob God? Yet you were robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You've, you're cursed with a curse, for you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. Remember back in the days of Malachi, the people were, the law of God had mandated the tithe to help support the work of the tabernacle, the tenth of the produce of their land that they were to give back to the Lord for the purposes of the priesthood and the activities thereof. But while a case can be made that we're not under the law of the tithe the same way Israel was, it, it still functions as a, as a biblical barometer of sorts for generosity. And I'm not just talking about money here because that's not the, that's not the big point. It's possible that we rob God, yes, by not giving God what he's owed, but also just our wholehearted love, our trust, our obedience, our service, our worship. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Dear ones, that's the way we rob God is when we don't offer all of ourselves to God. We'll give him the convenient parts. We'll give him the convenient parts of our time, our talents, our treasure. But really, that's reserved for us or other people. 
But no, we, we must make ourselves and all that we are available to God. We can't be, we rob God when we're stingy with our time, keeping it to ourselves, neglecting to pray, to worship, to serve others, or our willingness to express the Lord's ownership of our lives through just open-hearted and cheerful generosity. That's the minimum we can do. By not giving God the worship of our lives, by treating Him lightly, by ignoring sin, by taking credit for what He has done, by serving Him externally, by doing things for God just to get things from God rather than to get God or to get noticed or to feel great or get a pat on the back. Dear ones, that one's all robbing God. God's presence leaves when God's glory is robbed, when we try to take what belongs to Him and take it for ourselves. Thirdly, God's presence leaves when God is mocked. God's presence leaves when God is mocked. We've seen used, robbed, now mocked. And this is where we get into chapter 5, and I'm just going to summarize it. It's one of the most well-known chapters in the book of Samuel, and it's one of the most humorous. I think intentionally so, and we'll see that as we go along. Intentionally, so what happens? The Philistines have captured the ark now, and they're going back to the land of Philistia, taking the presence of God with them. Now, you remember their initial response when they heard that the Israelites had brought the ark into the army camp and were going to bring it out to battle with them? What happened? They trembled. They were fearful. They knew the stories. They'd heard what happened with the Egyptians and how God had routed them and defeated them at the Red Sea and brought his people safely out of Egyptian bondage and eventually through the wilderness and into the promised land. Ironically, the Philistines were responding better to the ark of God than the people of God were in chapter 4. But their tune changed once they defeated Israel, and they got the ark, and they brought it back into their own camp. In five one, chapter 5, verse 1, we're told the ark of God is in Ashdod, which is a city of the Philistines. And what happens there? Well, in chapter 5, verse 6, we read, The hand of the Lord was heavy. See, there's that word again. His glorious presence is pressing down on the people. The Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors. God's glorious presence, his weightiness, his heaviness, his greatness acted in judgment against the Philistines, just like, albeit in a different form, he didn't afflict the Israelites with tumors, but he, he judged the Philistines, just like he had judged the Israelites. The Israelites lost the battle. The Philistines get judged with these awful, terrifying, tumorous afflictions. And we're told why this happened. In verse 2 of chapter 5, the Philistines had placed the ark in the temple of Dagon, their false god. And what was this intended to do? Mock God. Mock. Look who the greater God is. Dagon is. Dagon is greater than Yahweh. So they made him subservient to Dagon by taking the ark and putting it in Dagon's temple. He's inferior. Yahweh is inferior to the God of the Philistines, the Philistines think. But what happens in the morning? They find the statue of Dagon on the ground, prostrate before the ark. That's funny. But it's even funnier how they respond. Because what do they do? They prop him up. They have to go back into the temple, lift him off the ground. Their, their, their big, strong God has to get picked up off the ground and set back up because Yahweh knocked him over. But what happens the next day? Well, he's decapitated. Dagon has no head. 
and his heads and his hands have been broken off. So the Philistines respond now because they're like, okay, this is serious. Dagon falling over is one thing. A decapitated Dagon is another thing altogether. This is going to get a whole lot worse. We've already had, we got tumors now. Let's get this ark out of here. So the Philistines send the ark away and they send it into another Philistine city, the city of Gath. And what happens? Gath breaks out in tumors. And so Gath says, we got to get this out of here. And so Gath sends it into the ark to Ekron, which is another Philistine city. And the same thing happens. And we read in summary in verse 11 of chapter 5, for death has filled the city with panic. God's hand was very heavy on it. So again, God's heavy, glorious presence is reacting. It's, it, and, and God's presence responds in judgment when he is mocked by the Philistines. And then finally, after seven months of suffering, the Philistines decide to send the ark back to Israel. It's, it's made its tour through the land of Philistia, leaving destruction in its wake. And then the Philistines decide to send the ark back to Israel. Now, it's interesting. They include a guilt offering in hopes that that will appease the Lord. And then to make sure it isn't all just a coincidence, they do something really interested. Pastor Thad, this is, this is good stuff. This is, Pastor Thad's like, that's a good way to test things. Let's see how they, so they want to make sure, okay, was all this a coincidence these last seven months? I mean, we've been afflicted with tumors in every single city in Philistia. Dagon's been destroyed. Uh, is, is it just, are we just imagining this? Is this just all superstition? Notice what they do. Chapter six, verse seven. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows. And all the Anderson said, amen. On which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. Now, why are they doing that? Because a milk cow is going to go after its calves. So they've separated the milk cow from the calf, taking the calves back to Philistia, and they're putting these milk cows on the cart. Now, their idea is, we're going to test whether this has all been superstition and whether this has all been just our own imagination. We're going to test it by what happens to these calves. If they start heading towards the land of Israel, then we know God has been doing this. And so, what do they do? Well, they send the calves on their way, and we read in verse 10, The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, that's toward Israel, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. So they conclude, yes, God was among us in judgment, and we're glad to see that ark go. Dear ones, the Philistines mocked God. They, they, they pretended that themselves and their idols were bigger and more significant and more powerful than God was. What does it mean to mock God? Well, it's just to show him disrespect. It's to dishonor him. It's to ignore him. It's, to, it's associated with ridicule and scoffing and defiance. Let me put it this way, dear ones. Those of us among us, this morning, if you're here and you're not yet a Christian, you have not yet committed your life to Christ's eternal safekeeping as your Savior and are not currently following Him as Lord, 
it pains me to say this, but your whole life is mocking God. You say, I don't, I'm not defiant. I'm not yelling. I just don't care about him all that much. Dear ones, that's the greatest sin you can commit. To treat the God of the universe as insignificant is a great sin against God. It is a mockery of who he is. You are giving him little weight in your life, little significance in your decision-making, little, you do not consider him worthy of your life. Mockery is associated with ridicule and defiance, but it's also associated with just low esteem, contempt, not just open hostility. The fundamental reason that some of because you don't esteem him as worthy of such. And you show contempt for his sacrifice. You might not be openly defiant, but your heart is inwardly hostile. Now it's easy for us as believers to point the finger to those outside of Christ and say, yes, they're mocking God. But dear ones, the most subtle mockery of God and often the most dangerous can come from those of us who are in Christ. We're guilty of mockery when we too behave with an outward show of spirituality or godliness without an inward engagement of heart or change of heart. Galatians 6, 7 states a universal principle. God is not mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What's the context of that statement? God is not mocked. Well, we mock God when we don't try to restore those among us who are caught in sin. Galatians 6, 1. We mock God when we fail to bear one another's burdens. Galatians 6, 2 through 5. We mock God when we fail to financially support the church, Galatians 6.6. 6. We mock God when we live according to the flesh and not according to the Spirit, Galatians 6.8. We mock God by giving up easily when things get hard, Galatians 6.9. We mock God when we fail to do good to, do good to them, especially those of the household of faith, Galatians 6.10. Those are all ways God tells us, don't be deceived. Man reap what he, reaps what he sows, God is not mocked. And so, dear ones, if the Apostle Paul had to remind the Galatian Christians, hey, God is not mocked, then it's a word for us as well that we need to remember that we too can fail to give God what he is worthy of in obedience and such. Fourthly and finally, we come to our last mark of God's presence leaving. We've seen God's presence leaves when it's used, when it's robbed, when it's mocked, finally God's presence leaves when God is assumed. When God is assumed. So what happens? Ark's going back. Right? Ark's going back to Israel. And we pick up the story in chapter 6, verse 13, where we read, Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh burned burnt offerings and sacrifices, sac- sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. Well, the people of Israel responded rightly, it seems, right? They rejoiced. They rejoiced that the symbol of God's presence was returning to be among them. And they even responded rightly. The Levites handled the ark. It was the priesthood. 
They were not to do just, just anybody touching it. However, here's what we read in the very next verses. Look at verse 17. Oh, we're skipped down to 19. They do a little, verses 17 to, and 18 just kind of describe a summary form of uh, the tumors and where they're placed and things like that. Verse 19, and he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh. What? The Lord? Again? Because they looked upon the ark of the Lord, he struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came down, took up the ark of the Lord, and brought it into the house of Benadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. They're making a priest there. And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. What an anticlimax. The ark comes back into the camp of Israel and breaks out in judgment on him again. A heavy blow again just as it was dealt against the Philistines and all their cities, is now dealt against the people of Israel again. Seventy men are killed for looking at the ark of God. Now the Hebrew expression looked upon could indicate staring. It could also indicate gloating. Maybe that rejoicing wasn't so pure after all. Why is God responding in judgment on his people again? Well, the people of Beth Shemesh violated the law of God in at least two ways. First, they were supposed to sacrifice bulls, not cows. See, that's a minor thing. Come on, females, males. Not when it comes to the law of God, it isn't. It's not a minor thing. God is holy, friends. Second, they should have covered the ark as soon as they saw it. Numbers 4, 5 tells them, instead of parading it around for everybody to look at, they just assume that the sign of the ark's return means the sign that God's favor has returned. Not true. See, God's being assumed. Hey, he's coming back among us. It's all good. No, it didn't. We must be doing something right if the ark is coming home. No, you're not. Even as God's presence is being rejoiced over, it's being assumed by the people. And while we no longer have the Ark of the Covenant among us, we can fall into the same way of thinking. I agree with David Wells when he writes, the fundamental problem in the evangelical world today, and he wrote this in 1994, and the last 20 years have not necessarily increased the, or lessened the truthfulness of this statement. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant, his grace is too ordinary, his judgment is too benign, his gospel is too easy, and his Christ is too common. Near the end of Psalm 50, we read this indictment by God of his people. You thought I was one like you. Dear ones, can we think that way? God's basically like me. He affirms all my... He hates all the people I hate. He loves all the people I love. He likes all the things I like. He dislikes all the things I don't like. No, that's not God. That should send chills up our spine. You thought I was one like you. 
we've domesticated God. We can tame him. We can be too flippant, too casual in our view of God. We need to remind, be reminded of the gravitas, the weightiness, the glory, the holiness of God. He's not easygoing. He's not a live and let live deity. He's not tolerant and chummy, the man upstairs who's our co-pilot. He is holy. He is different. He is other, and he will not be minimized or assumed. We see this as the weight of God's glory presses down in judgment on his people again. And so Israel responds the way the Philistines did. By sending the ark away, they send it to another town. While the first part of their response is correct, that is, they responded by saying, who can stand before the presence of the Lord? That's a great question to ask. Their second response by sending it away was not. They just say, hey, the ark did us bad, send the ark away. How about examine yourself? How about humble yourself? How about repent? How about cry out to the Lord for mercy? No, just get God out of here. And soon afterwards, God himself would bring destruction, not just among his people here, but on the entire tabernacle at Shiloh. This is the place where the priests ministered, where the national assemblies were held, where Hannah and Elkanah journeyed up in 1 Samuel 1 to worship. This is all going out. Sacrifices will be no longer offered there. Worship will no longer be given God's special presence would no longer be there. He's bringing destruction on his own tabernacle. Centuries later, the prophet Jeremiah would tell us the lesson we were to learn from all this when he says in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And there it is. There's the explanation for why all of this is happening. Israel, you're evil. You've done evil. You have misrepresented God. God has put your name on you. His name on you. And you have used Him. And you have robbed Him. And you have mocked Him. And you have assumed Him. What if there was a different way? The people are at the breaking point. Who can stand in God's presence? The ark can't stay with the people of Israel. The ark can't stay among the Philistines. Is there any place that God's, that God's presence can be safely accessed? More on that next week. But for now, and this is worth sticking around for, for now consider this. Israel has faced all kinds of calamity owing to their sin, haven't they? They've been defeated multiple times by their enemies. The ark was captured, and even when it was returned, they were judged. Their priesthood is gone. Their tabernacle is being destroyed. But you know what? The worst of the judgment that they have deserved has been spared. You say, what? Well, what was the ultimate judgment that God warned his people about in the days of Moses, that if they ever departed from him, the covenant curses would come down on him, on them as a people, and what would ultimately happen? They'd be exiled. Now that happens later in the Old Testament, but not here. They got to experience all of this while remaining in their own land. They were never kicked out. They were never so conquered by the Philistines that the Philistines took over the land of Israel. Why?
They've been judged in various ways. They remain in their land. They're never completely conquered by the Philistines. The greatest judgment that in Deuteronomy 28, God pronounces over his people, if you continue in sin, this covenant curse will come down. You will be removed from your land. Nations that are not of God will rule over you. Pagan nations. And that great judgment has been restrained for this time. Why? The reason the people never went into exile was because God just spent the last three chapters in exile for them. The sign of his presence, the Ark of the Covenant, traveled into Philistine land. God was sent out of the land instead of the people. In Psalm 78, you think, that's creative, Pastor Mark. Way to to go. Good insight. That's not new to me. Lots of other faithful brothers have seen it and pastors. But it's in the Bible. The Bible says it. Psalm 78, verses 6 and 61. We read, He took his dwelling at Shiloh. That says God. God forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. What? What did he deliver into a captivity? It doesn't say he delivered his people into captivity. It says he delivered his power into captivity. What was his power? What was his glory? What was the symbol of his glory? The Ark of the Covenant. The people deserve the exile. But God sent himself there instead. He went into exile for them. Dear ones, the Lord goes into exile in the land of the Philistines, and takes on the curses of the covenant for his people. And while he was in exile in Philistia, what did he do? He defeated Israel's enemies all by himself. He was willing to suffer a humiliating defeat at the hands of the Philistines in order to take the judgment his people deserved. Does that remind you of anyone? Do you know anyone who was willing to suffer a humiliating defeat at the hands of our enemies in order to free us from them. And by taking that intense humiliation on himself, what did God do? He triumphed over the principalities and powers of this age. On the cross, Jesus was sent into exile for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm gone, I'm out, I'm in exile. But he was cut off And took the judgment of exile on himself so that we would be welcomed home. Now we learn here that God is welcome and is is willing to suffer more shame than he calls his people ever to suffer. He will allow us to suffer shame. He let the people of Israel suffer some serious humiliation here. But it was only that they might discover the, the dangers and the emptiness of a false relationship with him and that they might, in the in God's own shame, find freedom from theirs. Sometimes God must depart from us in order that we might seek him rightly. And in the end, he will allow us to be disappointed, even with him, if it will awaken us to the sort of God that he really is. And here's the good news. We have a greater expression of God's willingness to go into exile for us than the people of Israel ever experienced. Because we have the cross of Jesus Christ that stands over us as, our, as the Son of God is stripped naked, shamed before everyone, 
And according to Hebrews 12, 2, he despised the shame of the cross for the joy that was set before him, which was our salvation. And so if you're in Christ, Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brothers and sisters, Hebrews 2, 11, because he has already been shamed for you. And God is not ashamed to be called your God, Hebrews eleven sixteen, because God has already been shamed for you. All who trust in Jesus, according to Romans ten eleven, will never be put to shame because God was put to shame for us. But Israel is saved by the Lord, Isaiah 45, 17, with everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. Praise God that there is a place in the universe where we can once again be naked and unashamed. And it's hidden safely in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is a God we learn here, who will allow himself and his glory to be dishonored for a time by some while he's restoring it in the long haul in order to rid us from shame for all eternity. Praise God. Hallelujah to our great God. Let's pray. Father, we worship you this morning in this story, in this narrative of what you did among the people of Israel in those days. We worship you as a God of greatness and power and glory. We worship you as a God of heaviness and weightiness and gravity. Lord, you've demonstrated it across these chapters. You will not be used. You will not not be mocked. You will not be assumed. You will not be robbed. In some sense... But in another sense in these chapters, you were willing to be used. You were willing to be mocked. You were willing to be robbed. You were willing to be assumed so that you might save your people from your ultimate judgment. That they might not have to go into exile because you went into exile for them. You were the substitutionary sacrifice for them. Lord Jesus, thank you for being for us. Thank you for announcing on the cross, not only it is finished, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that because you cried that, you will never say to us, be gone. Because you were forsaken in our place. So we praise your name. We worship you this morning as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.